2, verses 5 through 18 say this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, even lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself was, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord, let's pray. Father, by the power of your word, you created the universe and all that we see. And by the power of your word, you sustain and hold all things together. For your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it's able to cut between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And your word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Give us ears to hear your word this morning. And give us eyes to see that Christ is better. Amen. Good morning. morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. We're really glad that you're here with us this morning. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. We call it a Connect card. And uh, I want to remind you again why we enjoy uh, you filling that out. One is we really like to know who's here. Uh, we, we think that church is more than a seat where you sit and watch a stage on Sunday morning. So we want to interact. It gives you an opportunity to show interest in different things like groups or areas that you want to serve. You can mark that on the card. And my favorite thing is the prayer request part on the back of the card. You can write down a prayer request where you specifically want our elders and staff to pray for you. And uh, two different environments where you're being prayed for every week. Saturday morning, the elders get together and we pray specifically over uh, those requests. Then we take that list and we make it less specific. We generalize it so that on Thursday evenings at 7 o'clock, there's a group of people that come together and they too pray over you and your families. You're welcome to be a part of that group on Thursdays. Thursday, 7 p.m. in the Student Center. You can join that group in praying over the church. Uh, we believe that the Bible calls us to lift one another up, to carry one another's burdens, and that's one way uh, that we want to do that as a church. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 if you have a Bible this morning. We're continuing our series, uh, Christ is Better, a study through Hebrews, and we finished uh, off in chapter 2, verse 4. We're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 5 here in a little while. 
Ryan King, our student minister, passed an article to me this past week that I thought uh, really segued segued us into this passage. Um, And the article talks about the largest trees in the world. And um, the the biggest trees on the planet are sequoia trees. Um, And I realize in this, redwoods are taller, sequoias are bigger in mass. It takes 18 men. There's the largest tree stump called the Great Noble Tree, the the General Noble Tree, uh, took 18 men linking arms to wrap around the base of this tree, 18 full-grown men linking their arms to get around the trunk of this tree. What's fascinating about this tree, though, the General Noble, is that no one believed it existed. I mean, people had a really hard time wrapping their mind around this tree that had been growing uh, for 3,200 years, which means it started growing a couple hundred years before the time of King David. Like, wrap that around your mind. And people really had a hard time believing that trees could get that big. And so what they did when they cut the tree down is they took the stump of the tree and they cut it into different pieces, and they brought it to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. And the goal was, we're going to put this stump of this tree back together, and then if people see it, if it's right in front of them, if they can be confident, then they'll know, yes, these trees exist. And so that's what they did. They set up this tree stump, known now as the Chicago Stump, uh, at the Chicago World's Fair, so people would see this and then believe that this could actually be true, and they still didn't believe it. And as a matter of fact, it became known as the Great California Hoax, They thought they were all being tricked and could not believe that something like this could be real. And I thought to myself, no matter how much the evidence was put in front of them, they had a hard time believing it. And this is one of the things that the book of Hebrews presents to us. This idea that the God of the universe, who upholds the entire universe by the power of his word, cares intimately for you. For us, we think, yeah, I can believe in God. But when it comes to that God becoming a man, man, it's hard to wrap my mind around that. That is a really hard thing to wrap my brain around. And if you take it one step further, what's even harder than that is you're telling me, based on what we're studying in the book of Hebrews, that the God who created the universe understands how I feel and can relate to the circumstances that I find myself in. And it's exactly what the book of Hebrews is telling us. And for many of us, we miss out on it because like those with the tree stump, we find it really hard to believe that God could possibly know what I'm going through. God is perfect, and what I'm going through right now, Rob, is anything but perfect. How could he possibly fully know what I'm experiencing? The book of Hebrews lays it out for us. He starts in verse 5 of chapter 2. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. Remember, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, the author is making a very strong argument. The people in this church, they were tempted uh, to worship angels, to put all of their attention into angels. And his argument is, everything's been put in subjection to Jesus. Like, he's superior to the angels. Why are you worshiping something that was created when because of Jesus you have a direct line to the Creator Himself? Stop putting your attention here. You need to focus on Jesus. He's the one that's above it all. So he continues that argument. Of which we are speaking, it has been testified, verse 6, somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so, uh, in the margins of your, the Hebrews journal that you might have picked up, or in your Bible, or wherever you're taking notes, uh, I would put, hey, if something in Scripture is repeated, it's important. 
Two times in these few introductory verses of our passage today, he repeats the phrase, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a time. There's a specific amount of time where even though he's better than the angels, even though the angels serve him, even though he's higher than all of the angels, for a little while God made him lower than the angels for a specific purpose. So this is a transition statement. He's quoting from uh, Psalm 122, Psalm 8, and he's saying, hey, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little bit of time for a very specific purpose. And he's pointing to the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Jesus became human, and he did so for a very specific purpose. And he continues in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, so in saving us, it was fitting that he would become the founder of our salvation and be perfect that through suffering. So it said Jesus became a human so that he could relate to us and save us from our sins. It says it was fitting that he would do that because we couldn't do it for ourselves. Right? The, the big grand story of scripture tells us that we were lost in our sin, powerless, powerless to cover our own sin and redeem ourselves. So it is fitting that the king of kings would come and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Then he said, in doing so, he became the author of our salvation. Now, that word author is really fascinating. We studied it in depth a few months back at, in, around Easter time here at New Hope. Uh, it's used multiple times uh, in the book of Hebrews, particularly in chapter 12, where he says he was the author and founder of our faith. But that word author could be translated champion, if you remember. In Greek, it's the word archegos. Everyone say archegos. And even if I'm not translating it right, here's a little tip, tip for you guys. Just say it with confidence quickly, and they'll think you know what you're talking about. Archegos in Greek. A little less confident second time around, but you're doing okay. So uh, this idea of a champion in Greek mythology was fascinating. And it's really fascinating that he would use that term right here. He says, Jesus became the champion of our faith. And a champion in Greek mythology would save a group of people that were enslaved to something. In particular, in chapter 2, he says that we're enslaved by death to a fear of death, meaning when we're condemned to death, it's something we fear. But many of us, even after we know that we don't have to fear death, we still live in fear to death. Jesus came to release us from being fear, fearful of death. And it actually says the slavery, you're, you're in slavery with that fear that you have toward death. He says he came to be your champion for that. And here's how a champion would work. You've, the story of Hercules and many others. They would do one of two things. A champion would step in the way. So he would see a group of people that were being held hostage to something. And an enemy would be getting ready to attack. And the champion would come and absorb the attack that was intended for the people. So like arrows being shot, he would stand in the way and take the blow of the attack. Right? Many people, it's like a Superman movie. Right? If, if someone fires a gun at an innocent victim and Superman lands in the way and absorbs the blast, and yes, I did just make a Superman reference, uh, I'm a fan. All right? And so that's one way that they would save the people. Another way that they would save the people is that they would come in and those, the enemy that was holding the people captive, the champion would come in and completely annihilate that enemy, destroy that enemy. And the text here is telling us Jesus did both. And we're going to study that here in just a little bit. But Jesus came and absorbed a punishment that was intended for us and at the same time completely annihilated the enemy that was holding us captive so we don't need to live in fear of what that enemy was holding us captive to. And here it says that was a fear of death. And he continues his argument in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So he's saying, hey, it's, it's because of Jesus that we're considered brothers. It's because of Jesus that we're sons of God, that we are children of God. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, and underline this next phrase in your Bible, highlight this, partook of the same things. This is the gist of the entire passage. He partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. He's our champion, that is the devil. And destroying the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he rescues us from the slavery we had to the fear of death. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. There's a lot going on in that passage. He's quoting Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8, and he's making this point. That Jesus came to be our champion, and the way he accomplished that was by partaking of the same things that we partake of, namely suffering. He says, Jesus came, and whatever you're going through, whatever your experience in life it has been, Jesus can relate to it. That's what he's saying here. And this is where I struggle. This is one of my struggles. Because I wonder to myself, Jesus lived a really hard life. I mean, when you study the Gospels, you think, man, this was a difficult life to live. Okay? He was betrayed. He was hated. There are times in the Gospels where you're reading about the life of Jesus, and he feels lonely, like he feels alone. He's tempted. He's tired at times and completely worn out. He's got a bunch of people out to get him and a group of people that are supposed to be loyal to him that continually let him down. And he lives this really difficult life. And then it all comes together with this brutal death that he dies. Like it's brutal, the death that he has to endure. And sometimes my thought goes like this. Maybe you can relate to this. Why couldn't Jesus be born in the manger, live an easy life, die on the cross, resurrect from the dead and still rescue us from sin. Why is it that he had to live in between being born and, and, and dying on the cross? Why was it so difficult at times for him? Why did he have to endure that? Hebrews chapter 2 tells us the reason that Jesus endured that is so that when your telephone rings or your cell phone rings and you answer it and what was seemingly going really, really well and one phone call starts to go really, really bad, that Jesus could look at you and say, yeah, I know. I know what that's like. Or when life begins to bear down on you and the weight of the world feels like it's pressing on your soul, not just your shoulders, but deep in, it's affecting who you're becoming. Jesus could look and say, yeah, I know. It's when you feel lost and you wonder where he is and what he's doing. He won't look at you and scold you and say, are you kidding me? Look at what I've done for you. Step up, walk it off. He says, no, no, I get it. And that stings. And that's really, really hard. That's not easy to go through. I know how you feel. And I know that there's this danger in each of us that when we encounter this, we have to make choices about who we're going to become and how we're going to let God shape us in life's difficulties. And I know that that's true in your life because it's true in my life. I can't stand this idea that somehow a pastor is viewed as someone who has got this special connection with God. Like we're all in this together. Broken people who experience good days and bad chasing after Jesus. That's real life. And when I read the Bible, I see it all throughout the pages of Scripture where broken people experience real brokenness and it begins to weigh down on them. There's this fascinating story in your Old Testament in the book of Ruth where this lady, Naomi, she loses her husband unexpectedly. Her husband dies. And then right as she's recovering, as she's going through the grief of losing her husband, don't let this be lost on you. Really put yourself in her shoes. Her two sons die. 
And it's real pain. And at one time, Ruth comes up to her and Ruth says, hey, Naomi, and she stops her and says, don't call me Naomi. My name's not Naomi. My name is Mara. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. She said, enough's enough. Like, I've been through so much. My name is not Naomi. My name is Mara. I'm bitter. I'm broken. It's the weight of her circumstances and her difficulty weighing so heavy on her shoulders that it started to influence who she was. She's angry, the loss, the struggle. It all became so heavy on her that she couldn't see the beauty that still remained around her. It was all that she could see was what was right in front of her, and it was pain. Look, if there's ever been a worse life circumstance or situation than what Job encountered in your Old Testament, then I've not read it or experienced it. The loss that this guy goes through. And you read it, and you're just like, man, he has lost everything. And you get to this point in Job where he says, Lord, I understand. You give and you take away, but either way, blessed be your name, Lord. Blessed be your name. But his wife doesn't respond that way. His wife looks at their circumstances, and she snaps, man. She goes off on him, and she says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Are you kidding me? Curse God and die, fool. It was too much for her to bear. The circumstances weighed so heavy on her, it began to break her. And we'd be foolish. Can we just be honest? Can you look around this room and see how many people are seated in this room? We would be foolish to think that a room with this many people doesn't have some people that are going through it right now. It feels like things aren't working out for you and you're getting bitter. Like no matter how hard you try, things just aren't going your way. No matter what techniques you try in raising your children, it's just not producing what you want. No matter how hard you try at work, you're not getting the promotion. No matter how much effort you put into the marriage, it just doesn't seem like you're connecting. And it's just getting to be a lot. And you're in danger if you're not careful of becoming Mara, of becoming bitter. Not being able to see the beauty that still remains around you. And I know that there is pain and difficulty and frustration in this world. But I think Hebrews chapter 2 is screaming out to us, on those bad days, Jesus could look at you with grace and mercy in your eyes. And he could say, I know. Not step up, not work harder. I know. That's our starting place. We'll get to the other stuff later. It's as if Jesus would say to you, man, I understand. I know what you're going through. There are days when theology doesn't seem to comfort the soul. Theology meaning our study and our understanding of God. There are days where we're confused and we're hurt. And it just seems like it's going to do us in. And the only thing that can help the blow of that kind of pain is an understanding that someone understands where you're at. And the Bible says Jesus understands exactly what you're going through, but it's like the Chicago stump for some of us. Like, no way. He couldn't possibly understand that. So I want to take a few moments. I want you to really zero in with me. If you're having a long Sunday morning and you're tired, I think these next few moments are important. And I want to look at the life of Jesus and draw some things from it. And I, I think God wants to communicate something really important to us in these next few moments. I want us to look at the life of Jesus so that in your bad days, your difficulties, you will understand, yeah, he does know what I want, I'm going through and what I've been through. Let's see what Jesus endured in the life that he lived. First is Jesus was tempted Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You see, Jesus, after 40 days and 40 nights, picture how hungry you would be, and the enemy comes to him, and the first thing he does is he attacks his identity. 
You see, in Matthew chapter 3, the voice of God declared over Jesus, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the very first words out of the mouth of the enemy are, If you are the Son, you shouldn't be this hungry. So just turn the stone into bread and eat. If you really were the Son, you wouldn't be tempted like this. So throw yourself off the top of the temple because it is written that the angels will come and rescue you. Remember, they serve you. You're better than them. And then he says, hey, Jesus, look at the kingdoms of the earth. And he takes him to a mountaintop and he shows him. And he says, if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And my plan doesn't come with a cross because you and I both know what you're going to have to go through for his plan. And he tempts him. And I've worked in ministry, and I've seen, and I've experienced it in my own life. We are tempted in many ways. I mean, right now it is prevalent in our culture that men are tempted and pulled toward pornography and sexual sin like never before in history. And that temptation hits, and I've talked to so many men that say, in that moment, there's, it's tunnel vision. I don't know how I can control it. I can't get past it. It is so strong, and it's as if in that moment nobody knows how I feel to be tempted like this. I've talked to many ladies that are pulled in a direction emotionally towards somebody that's not their spouse, and they're pulled toward that, and it's in that moment they feel, no one gets how I feel. You don't, you don't understand what it's like to be tempted this strong. Jesus would look and say, yeah, I, I know what it's like to be tempted. I know. It's not easy. I know what it's like to feel the way you feel right now. And in those moments, to entertain that thought, I'm alone, Jesus would say, no, you're not. I know what it's like to be tempted. Jesus was also tired. He was tired. John chapter 4, verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus was worn out. We got any moms here today? Right? I think my wife's a superhero. All of you are. I mean, I come home and I think I've had a long day. She has corralled four kids plus all their friends. The power of multiplication, so it's like 190. And, she's, and, and she still keeps the house nice and there's dinner ready. And I'm blown away. Many guys travel for work and you just feel pulled from your family and you feel like, I have to get this done, I have to work, I have to accomplish this, and then I have to come home and all these hats I have to wear and all these roles I have to fulfill and the pressure so much, does anybody understand how tired I am? I just want a break. I'd love to have a day off where I don't feel like I have to take four more days off to recover from that day off, and I'd love to have a day off where I don't feel like I'm so far behind that work's going to be crazy when I get back. I'm just tired. And you feel, does anyone actually know how tired I am? How this feels? I feel like no one gets it. Jesus would look at you and say, I get it. I know. Life's hard. And we're tired. And so was he. Jesus knows what it's like to lose someone that he loved. That pain of losing someone that he loved dearly. John chapter 11, verse 33 to 35 says this. When Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is the death of his best friend Lazarus, someone he loved dearly. And he's, he's with the two sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And he says, hey, where have you laid his body? Where have you laid him? And they said, come and see. And perhaps the two most profound words put next to each other in all of human history, Jesus wept. He wept. Many of us know this pain of the phone ringing and everything changing. You know what it's like to sit in the waiting room and come and be told that the one you love isn't going to make it. 
You know what it's like to have to say goodbye to somebody and think, I don't, I'm not going to see you again. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. You know what it's like to lose somebody when it was way too soon for them to go. You know what it's like to agonize, to be woken up at night with nightmares and dreams. You know what it's like to feel the weight, that loss, on your soul. And in those moments, it's easy to think, man, no one knows what this is like. Jesus would look at you with a deep love. And he'd say, I know. I know what that feels like. Jesus was betrayed by a very close friend. Matthew chapter 26, verse 49 and 50 say this, And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Don't let this be lost on you. This is not a fairy tale. And he kissed him. Think about this. Judas, someone who Jesus had invested in. They weren't just friends. Jesus invested in him for three years. And Judas comes to Jesus and with the most hypocrisy that you could ever imagine, says, greetings, Jesus. And then he leans in and gives him a customary kiss on the cheek that should have meant friendship and endearment, but in that moment was full betrayal. And just picture what Jesus is feeling as he's looking at Judas's eyes coming closer to him, and as he gives him that kiss on the cheek, knowing what was about to happen. It's as if Judas was shoving the knife deeper into Jesus' heart, just twisting it. And this guy that he loved and he cared about and he wanted to invest in and he had dreams for and a future for did nothing but betray him. And the pain of that loss. Many of you have experienced this. Someone that you love so deeply and all you want to do is serve them and it's as if they don't even notice it and they just shove that knife deeper into your back or deeper into your heart and they just twist it. And it hurts so bad because all you want is things to work out and you've been completely betrayed. Someone who you love that has completely mistreated you and they shouldn't have done that. And in those moments you think, man, does anyone, knows what it's, does, does anyone know what it's like to be betrayed like this? This kind of pain. Jesus would look at you and say, yes. I know. You're not alone. I know how you feel. Jesus was hated. I'm going to the reference for this is Matthew 27, verses 27 to 31. Jesus was hated. It says that they mocked him, and they spit on him, and they hit him. They ripped his clothes off and left him naked to embarrass him. And they made a crown of thorns, and they shoved it deep onto his head to hurt him. And for what? Because he welcomed children. Because he healed the, the lame and the blind, because he loved the poor, because he cared for everybody around him. Many of you have experienced hatred in your life. Hatred that doesn't seem to have a cause. It's like, I'm just trying to be a good person. Why do they hate me? Why do they mistreat me? Maybe you've been hated because of the color of your skin. Like, I didn't do anything to deserve that kind of a treatment. Or maybe you've been hated because of where you grew up, or the way that your body looks, or the, the money that you didn't have, or the money that you did have when you were growing up. Maybe you've been hated because you, you just excel and you, you work really hard and you accomplish things and people are jealous and so they display hatred towards you and all you're trying to do is the right thing. And all this hatred weighs so heavy on your soul and you think to yourself, does anyone know what it's really like to feel hated like this? Jesus would look and say, yeah, yeah I know how you feel. Perhaps the most difficult one of all, though, is Jesus... Jesus offered forgiveness 
when it was unsought and undeserved to the very people that hurt him. Luke chapter 23, verse 34 says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them as they beat him and crucified him. Forgive them. This could be one of the hardest situations we find ourselves in. Someone who's hurt you. Someone who's done something to you to cause you pain and grief and difficulty in your life. And you feel this nudge from the Holy Spirit. You feel God calling you to forgive them. And you think, how could I forgive them for what they did? I don't want to forgive them. I'm Mara. I'm bitter. I don't want to forgive them. What they did is unforgivable. I cannot forgive that person for what they did to me. I mean, do you really know what it's like to be mistreated this bad, God, and then to have to offer forgiveness like that? Do do you have any idea? And in those moments of confusion, he would offer clarity and say, yeah, I know what it's like. I made eye contact with them from the cross. I know what it's like because I gave my son to forgive you. I know what it's like. You see, Jesus lived a very hard life so that he could relate to you. So that in your moments of despair, you would know that you are not alone. It's as if he is making good on his promise in Matthew 28, verse 20. Go and make disciples, but don't forget every step of the way, I'm with you. I'm with you. You're never alone. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And on moments of confusion, I can offer you clarity because I've been there. And I'm with you. There is one thing that Jesus endured that you don't have to. Hebrews chapter 2 concludes this way, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become the merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This merciful and faithful high priest is loaded with meaning. See, the high priest was a single person who went on a single day, the Day of Atonement, into a single place, the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle. He would go into this place, and he would take, he would, into the temple, and he would take blood from a single animal, and he would sprinkle the blood as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, though he himself also needed that forgiveness. And that's why he's offering the sacrifice. It has to be done every year because he himself also needed it. But in your Old Testament, to someone named Eli, there was a promise made that there would come a faithful high priest, one who was able to make a single atoning sacrifice that would cover the sins of people for all time. And this is a clear pointing to that promise being fulfilled. Jesus comes as a faithful high priest, not needing atonement, but offering it anyway. And reconciling us to God, overcoming our sin for us. But it says he was also merciful. And this is a pointing to the fact that in addition to atoning for our sins, he put on flesh and became like us so that we won't suffer by ourselves. And it said he became the propitiation for our sins. Let me give you a very simple understanding of propitiation. It's as if, so God is holy, okay? God's holy. He can't be around sin. But the grand meta-narrative of Scripture tells us that we had sin and we were separated from God. And so he can't be around that sin or he'd cease to be God And so on top of that, he has to punish that sin. And so because we have that sin, it's as if he's got a giant cannon pointed directly at us. And he's about to blast his wrath on the sin that he has to punish in order to maintain his character as God. And the scope of that cannon is 
completely on point, and it is going to nail us. But then our champion steps in the way, Jesus, and absorbs the blast of the wrath of God, being a propitiation, absorbing the wrath on our, be- on our behalf, absorbing that wrath for us, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's this idea of propitiation. And then it says, he did all of this so that in your deepest moments of temptation, you would realize he too was tempted. That when there was all confusion and the weight of the world is on your soul, when the telephone rings and what was going really, really good all of a sudden is going really, really bad, and you're tempted to think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Does anyone know how I feel? He would look and say, yeah, I know how you feel. You're not alone. I know how you feel. Mary Cushman uh, was alive during the Great Depression in the 1930s. She had a little girl and her husband. His job got reduced to paying him $18 a week. But he was also a very sickly man, and so there were weeks on end where he couldn't go to work, and so they were running out, and she was at the end of a rope. True story. She'd come to the conclusion she could not go on any further, and so she put newspaper under the door, closed all of the windows, turned on the gas heater, but didn't light it. Grabbed her daughter, laid down in bed, and her daughter said, Mommy, this is funny. We just woke up. And she said, We're just going to take another nap. She's going to end it all. When all of a sudden, true story, she heard something. She forgot to turn the radio off. And in that moment, a song was played on the radio whose lyrics penetrated her heart and reminded her of the truth we've been talking about today. It's a song that may have ministered to your soul as well. Fast forward many years later, a preacher in Lexington, Kentucky named John Weiss. His wife's pregnant with their first child. And he gets a phone call that changes things, that he come home, something's not right. So he comes home and he takes his wife to the emergency room and they think it's going to be just normal things and one doctor comes in and says, hey, we're going to have to keep her here on bed rest and, and test her, 26 weeks pregnant, we're going to have to just, she's got to stay here for observation. All of a sudden her blood pressure started to shoot out of the roof, another doctor walked in and then when a third doctor walked in, John said, I knew. And they said, hey, we're going to have to deliver this baby today. So they brought him, they brought him into a room. And he sat down by himself in this room and he waited to be called into the emergency room. And he knew he was gonna be called in and the baby would be delivered and it was gonna be a whirlwind. He didn't know how everything was gonna go. His wife, her health and life was at risk. The baby's life was at risk. He was confused. He sat down and was tempted to think, man, does anyone know how I feel when the lyrics of a song came to him? It's a song he said is ministered to him in the darkest seasons of his life. And it's the same song that caused Mary Cushman to get up, pull the paper from under the door, open the windows, and fight another day. It's the lyrics to the song that saw John and his wife through many, many months in the neonatal intensive care unit. It's a song he looks back to with gratitude because his little girl is now grown and healthy and his wife made it through. And maybe the lyrics of this song have ministered to you, and maybe they will going forward as you remember the God who says, I know. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. This week will not be easy, friends. We have an enemy. 
And that enemy will attack your identity in Christ and make you think that you're all by yourself. We're going to take a few moments to respond to the passage today by preparing our hearts for communion and remembering the God who in our darkest moments looks to us and says, I know. You're not alone. I know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible life of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that he became for us what we could not be for ourselves. Thank you that he is the propitiation for our sins, that he took on your wrath for us. Father, thank you that he has reconciled us to you. And God, in addition to the gratitude we feel for that today, we are grateful for the suffering that Jesus endured, for the temptation that came his way, that he overcame, Father, for the pain of betrayal and hatred that was hurled his way. Father, for the worn out, tired days that he had. Father, thank you that he modeled for us what it means to truly forgive when we've been wronged. God, thank you that on our deepest, darkest days, he looks at us with grace in his eyes and says, I know. And so God, in these next few moments as we respond through singing, And then the taking of communion, would you meet us in this place, God? Would you remind us of your faithfulness, your goodness? Those of us that are suffering and experiencing difficulty right now, Father, would you meet us in these next few moments as we turn our attention and our affection to your son, Jesus? Thank you for being the God who came down, the God who knows how we feel. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,